Well, happy new year, everyone, and welcome to 2022 and the launch of season five of the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Hockman. Uh, this new season of the Healthy Skeptic, I am going to experiment with a couple different formats. I'm going to try to mix up some of the uh, interviews I do on topic with news summaries and other formats. And today's actually a good example of that because with the latest surge of Omicron, I thought it would be a good time for us to get a good practical update on what's going on. My guest is Dr. Peter. Cohen. I've had him in the past on a couple episodes on dietary supplements and on COVID-19. Peter is the lead author of the uh, Outpatient Treatment for COVID-19 chapter in Up to Date, which is the main medical textbook. So someone very knowledgeable about this topic. He also runs a COVID-19 clinic at the Cambridge Health Alliance. And we are going to cover all those nuts and bolts, practical tips about what's new. Peter's going to give us his take on uh, how Omicron, the Omicron strain may be acting differently compared to prior strains of uh, COVID-19, uh, what we should know about Paxlovid, this new uh, antiviral pill that was recently authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. Peter's also going to give his take on the CDC's new isolation guidelines that were shortened to five days for patient, patients with recent infections. One caveat on this, uh, shortly after I recorded this um, discussion with Peter, the CDC issued a new recommendation, uh, which is actually very much what Peter and I talked about, about adding a, a recommendation. Uh, antigen test before uh, patients are uh, released from uh, isolation after an infection. So um, apropos to our discussion, and Peter's also going to talk uh, about antigen tests, what they can and can't tell us. Uh, if you do find today's episode engaging, please do search and subscribe to the Healthy Skeptic MD wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube. Pass it along to friends, family, and others who might be uh, interested. So with that, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Peter Cohen from the Cambridge Health Alliance. All right. Well, welcome back to the Healthy Skeptic MD, Dr. Peter Cohen from the Cambridge Health Alliance. Uh, Mike, it's so great to be back. Well, we, we have a lot to cover. We're in the midst, unfortunately, of another surge of this pandemic, and I thought you'd be a great person to bring in. And you just put out another great video on updates that I'll link to for anyone interested. But I sort of wanted to go through a rapid fire list of questions that are coming up all the time that maybe you could help some of our lay audience uh, better understand. So so let's jump right in. Uh, the first is with, uh, with Omicron. There's a lot of hope that this strain is going to be a little bit less virulence than previous strains. We're not going to have quite the hospitalizations. Part of that may also be due to greater immunity. More people have vaccines and prior infections. And although we'll have a lot of cases, it may not lead to the surge of hospitalizations and deaths that we've seen in the past with prior surges. What have you seen in your COVID clinic so far? Well, it's been really interesting, uh, Mike. Uh, first off, the, the, the amount of spread and the amount of people simultaneously um, contracting uh, the Omicron variant or, or uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, because we don't really do uh, variant checks, you know, on our patients. But right here in Boston, we're seeing about 82% of all cases are due to Omicron. And what we really uh, have seen is, is that it's dr spreading dramatically faster. More people are simultaneously ill with it than ever before. There's good news and bad news. Uh, that's the bad news is that it's absolutely everywhere. The vaccine does not prevent it, probably decreases uh, transmission a bit, but you can certainly get it if you've been vaccinated. You can certainly get it if you've had another variant in the past. Uh, but what we are seeing, our personal experience, is that it's a milder illness in general. Now, unfortunately, 
that in general is really the key because with uh, so many cases, that still means we have a lot of sick people, a lot of people heading to the emergency department, a lot of people requiring hospitalization. But fortunately, it's a much milder illness in general than the earlier variants. One of the thinkings they are right is that it tends to stay more in the upper respiratory tract and be less likely, it still can, but less likely to go into the lungs and cause a true pneumonia, as I understand it. Right, that's right. That, that's our understanding uh, too here. And one thing that we find is that some of the symptoms might be slightly different actually. Um, in the first wave, we saw that uh, sore throat, for example, like a, a bad sore throat or, or a sore throat like a strep is, was not something that we commonly saw. Occasionally we saw it. Now it's more common now we see with that Omicron. So exactly, Mike, it's, it's these upper respiratory symptoms, the stuffiness, the nasal congestion, the sinuses being uh, blocked up, the sore throat. These are the kind of common symptoms that we're seeing with uh, Omicron. So you mentioned the vaccines, Peter, and um, I, you know, we want to get this message exactly right. So uh, let me try and state my understanding and you tell me if I'm misunderstanding it. The vaccines are incredibly, incredibly important, both the primary series and the boosters for preventing people from getting sick and getting hospitalized and, and dying. So absolutely everyone should be getting vaccines, but they do seem less effective at blocking transmission and blocking those initial infections. Is that a fair assessment? Perfect. Uh, the really important thing here is for us to unpack two separate issues. One question is how dangerous is a COVID infection going to be for you if you contract uh, the virus? And the second question is, are you going to contract it? And what we really care about is that first question. We really care about the fact that we need to, that we all want to make sure that if we do get contract uh, uh, the virus, that it's not going to be a serious infection, that we don't need to go and see a doctor. We don't need to go to the emergency room. We're not going to need oxygen or hospitalization. That's the most important question. The vaccines consistently show fantastic, the best evidence for preventing that being hospitalized or dying from, from uh, the coronavirus is from getting vaccinated. And that holds up with Omicron and uh, all the other variants. Unfortunately, in terms of the second question, transmission, Omicron has a way of easily uh, evading the sort of immunity that's created by the vaccine. So it doesn't work as well, but it's still uh, extremely protective of serious disease. So there's no question in my mind, it doesn't change one uh, 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 iota of my opinion that the very mo the most important and the first thing one should do not just to, uh, to protect yourself but to protect your families your loved ones coworkers and the community is to get uh, fully vaccinated. Right, and I've heard that the vaccine is sort of like uh, converting a COVID infection from a from a serious life threatening illness to maybe more of a common cold or flu. So, Pete, compared to prior uh, uh, flares of of the pandemic, we have an important new tool now. There's a new FDA authorized medication called Paxlovid um, that just uh, became available. Can you tell us a little bit about it and which patients should consider getting it? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I think it's. Uh, most important to say off the bat that for the for, see, for for the next few weeks, maybe even the next few months, access to these pills are going to be extremely limited. But that means that for right now, we should be using this at the for our most highest risk uh, um, uh, patients. So, um, but let's now talk about uh, what's what this is because in a few months, it's going to help us revolutionize the treatment of 
of uh, COVID. Basically, uh, the pill is two different medications, um, and at the core, at, at the core, is a mechanism to stop viral replication. So it basically gets in there in a way that jams the machinery, the engine really, of the novel coronavirus. And this, uh, by jamming the machinery, what's really exciting about this type of medication is that it's machinery that we don't have in our normal cells. So it's something that the virus has, we don't have, and it jams the system, stops replication. That's the idea. Um, and uh, it, it's very exciting because on initial uh, preliminary, uh, initial study, which seems to be robust, although I need to let you know that we haven't, the, the full report has not been released to the public. We just have summaries. The FDA has received the full report, but it looks very promising. Thousands of patients randomized, dramatic reduction in hospitalizations and deaths for people that are started on these pills early enough. And I think it's fair to say, Peter, you and I are on the conservative side with new medications. We, we tend to have a cautious approach. This is one of those situations where we're certainly in, encouraged. With that said, do you think everybody with a mild COVID infection should get it? No, especially right now, um, Mike, I really think we should be limiting this to the very, um, the very highest risk um, uh, people. But the NIH has set up a, a, a system, a level, a tier system to identify if you only have a few of these dosages, who should be getting it. And I'll just tell you about the top tier. And that the top tier are the ones probably, we probably don't even have enough to, to cover the top tier right now in, in every state. But basically the top tier would be someone who's at very high risk for serious disease from COVID and is either not vaccinated or they have profound immunodeficiency such that the vaccine isn't thought to have created real immunity uh, uh, protection from serious illness. Those are the only people right now that I'd recommend getting um, uh, this new combination pill because of limited su supplies. Later, we can kind of um, expand that to uh, more people. And and also, I think as you get to, to healthier folks with milder illness, the risk benefits become a little more challenging. So I think both for the supply issue to make sure it gets the people who need it most, and until we have a little more data, it, it really does seem to be the highest risk people who, who we should prioritize prioritize it for. Right, Mike, I completely agree with you. Uh, that's an important point. I, I'm, let's imagine, um, flash forward, three months from now, uh, four months from now, we have plenty then I think it's going to be really important to make the point that people at low risk of needing to be hospitalized do not need to take this pill. And because it's a brand new pill, that's just we're going to slowly understand more about its uh, potential side effects and how it interacts with other viruses and and um, people's kidney function and other drugs, you name it, that's going to take a lot of time. So unless someone has a high risk, of being hospitalized, I don't recommend this pill or any sort of treatment. It's really for the same types of patients who we, in the past, recommend monoclonal antibodies. The um, antibodies being infused into the bloodstream that combat uh, the virus. And in terms of the monoclonal antibodies, Peter, that and also remdesivir, those were treatments that were talked a lot about earlier in the pandemic. Do they still have a role with this new medication, Paxlovid? They will have a role. Um, they, they could have a role, actually. We, we really need to understand this better um, because they work on 
a different using different mechanisms to stop the virus. One's beefing up the immune system. Uh, that's the monoclonal antibody. Then there's the jamming, the, re uh, the viral replication, which is the new pills. And then remdesivir similarly um, interferes with the virus itself. So it's possible, and we're going to need more studies about this, about whether or not we can combine these different uh, regimens. But it's very possible you can imagine a situation where for our very highest risk patients, those, for example, who have gotten vaccines, but there's no sense that they ha have any immunity to the virus due to profound immunodeficiency. What you could imagine in the future when we had plenty of supplies would be use a monoclonal antibody plus the pill. It's, it's possible. But for most people, it's going to be choosing um, either the pill will be able to easily replace the monoclonals. Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of moving parts. The good news is there are several options now. We're still trying to put all the puzzle pieces together, which patients need which. But the, the key take-home message is really the highest risk, the immunocompromised, who should consider talk with their doctor about getting one of those treatments. And Paxlovid in particular, I think there's a lot of appropriate enthusiasm for. All right, so... There's been, I want to shift to the uh, the CDC uh, uh, isolation guidelines for someone who's been uh, in, infected with COVID-19. The CDC made a controversial change. I have an opinion on this. I'm really curious what your take on it. They shortened the isolation period from 10 days down to five days. Do you think that that was an evidence-based decision? And do you think it was the right decision by the CDC? That was, that's controversial. And I wouldn't say that's not my practice now, uh, despite the CDC. I do really like, um, th there's a part of this here that I really like, which is let's stop being overly conservative, uh, which the 10 day isolation uh, was. And 10 day isolation is, is really excessive because most of the time that one is infectious um, and can pass it to someone else from, during um, a COVID, uh, COVID illness is during those first few days, usually the first five days of infection or less, two or three days. And what's really challenging is that it's really a day or two before you even have symptoms. And that's when you can also uh, pass to other people. That's the challenge uh, of the virus. But despite that, um, the CDC was having people isolate for 10 days to be very conservative. And I like the idea of opening that up and saying, hey, maybe everyone doesn't need to be isolated for 10 days. That's good thinking. But I would have liked to see this more gradual. And I would have liked it to see drop it down to seven days first and see how, how we all did with that. Um, alternatively, if we wanted to drop it down as little as five days, then I would say, let's do something like a rapid antigen test at five days to make sure that's negative before people uh, return. So that's my personal practice. It's what I advise um, my uh, patients to do. It's what we've done here in the family is that um, we'll isolate at day five, check a rapid, and then decide um, based on that. If the rapid's positive, then still isolated, quarantine uh, for more days until either 10 days are up or um, if you have enough tests to check them, an antigen, rapid antigen test has become negative. Yeah, so it sounds like we actually are fairly close in our perspective on this one. I, I do applaud the CDC for trying to shorten that 
10-day period. I think that was excessive. I think the data is that the vast majority of spread is in the, in the 48 hours before someone develops symptoms up to the first two to three days. Um, I think five days may be um, a little bit too soon. And actually, what, what I think I would have favored is to put that rapid antigen test at the end of the five days. If that's negative, it is very likely that someone's no longer contagious. And the CDC has even been discussing adding that uh, rapid t- uh, test at the end of the five-day uh, period. So I completely agree with you. Uh, we have a, why I probably would have done seven days is the logistics of it. We just don't have. I know that um, you know the administration is planning on sending out half a billion um, rapid antigen tests for free, and you know we have some availability, but it's very hard for us to get our hands on uh, rapid antigen tests uh, at this time. So from a practical perspective, uh, I, I don't think that's. It's it's really a tough situation right now. Well, what I've been telling my patients is if you're feeling better after five days of illness, you're not having fevers at least 24 hours, get a rapid antigen test at the end of five days if you can. If that's negative, you should feel pretty good returning to society. And if you can't get a rapid antigen test, then maybe you do wait an extra couple days. Yeah, and, and I think it's important for us to say too um, – Mike, that uh, that we still want for those uh, additional for the full ten days, so another five days, to make sure that this is a situation that, that anytime you're in, in, in enclosed quarters with uh, other people, be it your family or outside or at work, make sure you're wearing a mask. That's a great point. So you know, you clear that five days doesn't mean go to a big uh, sports game with a lot of people around you. You know, that's a good time to still wear a mask, be a little cautious for for the next five days because there may be some residual contagiousness um, going on. So, Peter, I wanted to uh, ask a couple more questions. Uh, The the next one's about long COVID. You've actually been doing a lot of work with patients with long COVID at the Cambridge Health Alliance uh, COVID clinic. What insights have you gained about this from your experience working with these patients? Yeah, well, I, I think the biggest um, uh, misunderstanding or, 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 or narrative that I'm disturbed by hearing so often in, in the mainstream media is, and, and, and also uh, from some groups that advocate for, um, for uh, patients with uh, long COVID, is that there's some sort of uh, hard and fast division between uh, psychiatric illness and uh, other types of illnesses. Let's say someone has a heart attack and they're hospitalized and they come out of the hospital and their heart disease is well controlled with aspirin and cholesterol medications, their blood pressure is well controlled. But then they have typical symptoms of major depression. Uh, They can't get out of bed. They have lack of motivation. They, They have no appetite. Um, it's hard to concentrate and feeling hopeless. Now, we don't get ourselves tied up in a pretzel trying to figure out if something about having the heart attack, if it was like some lack of oxygen to the heart or some, um, you know, enzymes that are released in the body that damaged the brain and caused major depressive disorder. Or if it's uh, or if it's entirely um, hormonal neurotransmitter imbalances in the brain, and we know there's a mind-body connection that the physical illness affects mental illness. That it's very that's very well established. Absolutely. So we have a situation here where it's just it doesn't matter what the, if it was due to some lack of oxygen briefly in the hospital, if it was due to the um, 
to the anxiety and stress of being in the hospital for the heart attack or thinking one might uh, die from the heart attack. It doesn't really matter what triggered it or, or why someone has major depressive disorder, but it, but it, and it also doesn't make it less real if the symptoms are related to actual lack of oxygen or due to, to being uh, um, terrified of having the heart attack. So what I don't like, what I hear uh, a lot actually when it comes to long COVID is sort of this division. Um, is it, is, is it just a, uh, uh, imbalance in the brain based on the experience of, of living through the pandemic with with uh, the infection, or is it that the virus got into the brain and did this damage? Um, that's not a very fruitful route to go. I, I, I think the the point is people are suffering. We need to absolutely recognize that and then treat uh, effectively. So I guess that that's my one take home, Mike. Is I, I, I wish we could get away from this whether or not the virus is actually still in the brain or replicating in the brain or did direct damage to nerve cells. That, that's really not the question uh, that's most important to patients. And what I would add to that, and I think you've alluded to this in the past, the critique that um, doctors maybe are not taking it seriously because they think there's a, a psychological component to it. I take uh, psychological conditions like PTSD and depression very seriously. I, I treat it in the same way I would any other mental illness. And I, I think that's the way you do take it seriously and treat it appropriately because, uh, you know, if there is a psychological component to it, the, the, the treatment is um, is different. It's not a pill. It's not, uh, it's not an antiviral medication. It's, it's some of the... Um, the therapy techniques, maybe it's an antidepressant. There, there's, a, you know, it really has treatment implications. Right. I, I think you'd have to go back, you know, 40, 50 years, Mike, before when doctors were not taking PTSD, uh, depression, generalized anxiety disorder seriously as, as a very serious illnesses that require uh, timely and excellent care. And I, I think that we need to get away from talking about whether or not this is, uh, you know, the, the, the mechanism and focus on the, the, the illness. Okay, Peter, I want to end with two very pragmatic questions. Uh, the first is, uh, your health, uh, you know, relatively healthy middle-aged person, you develop COVID. What, what should you do? What should be going through your mind? So you're healthy and you're middle-aged. That's great news because especially if you're uh, vaccinated, you're going to do really well. So what should be going through your mind is getting uh, yourself from uh, in a in a position where you're not spraying to anyone else. That's that's really the key. And anyone, and of course, it's impossible to have known you know days before you develop the illness that um, or you're positive uh, that you had it. So just make sure you're you're careful communicating that with everyone who you spend time with. Um, if you start having symptoms. You start having uh, trouble breathing. Uh, you start feeling dizzy, especially if you're having symptoms predominantly in, or they're worsening when you're walking around, going up flight of stairs, walking in the house, particularly um, you know after you've been had the virus for a few days. So you're in days four through eight of illness. Those are good times to call. Uh, important to call your doctor to say, hey, you know. I have the uh, I have COVID and I'm starting to have these new symptoms several days into the illness. Let them know, but otherwise I would sit tight and uh, and make sure that you're not spreading it to other people. Yeah, and these are a lot of the same common sense advice, the same you know 
alarm signs that you would look for if you had a, a bad flu, when to call the doctor, the same things that are going to apply uh, here as well. Absolutely. So last question, Peter, is there anything in your experience working with in the COVID clinic that you wish um, more people understood uh, about this disease? Well, I, I think that people, knowledge is really high and that's super. There's a lot of engagement, so much learning. I, I would say one of the more common sort of confusions right now is that um, because we're dealing in a situation where there's more home antigen tests being done than ever before. So I, I think the most important thing is for people to understand the following. If you have viral symptoms, if you have those upper respiratory tract infection uh, symptoms, you have a new runny nose, your sinuses are congested, you have a little fever, sore throat, you go and do that rapid antigen test and it's normal. Here's the key. You still need to presume right now in the middle of the Omicron wave that you have COVID, that that test is actually does not help you tell you that you don't have COVID. It's, it's a crazy thing to un, try to understand, but it's basically, if you do the test, it's helpful if it's positive because that tells you, you definitely do have COVID, but the negative test doesn't tell you which way. Maybe you have COVID, maybe you don't. It's still a total mystery. So you just need to assume that you can, you might as well just pretend you didn't do the test and uh, you can repeat a test tomorrow, or you can go and find a PCR test or you can simply isolate for the five days. Th those are really the options. And the, the truth is, whether it's the flu or COVID, you still want to be at home isolating and taking it easy and you don't want to spread, spread whatever it is. I think it's really important for everyone to keep in mind that these antigen tests especially are, are, are not perfect. They're very helpful because you get a, a rapid answer, especially if it's positive, that can be very helpful. But if it is negative, it's just one piece of information. If your symptoms are otherwise consistent with COVID, uh, you have a viral illness right now, given the current state of, of the world in this pandemic, you're going to want to stay home and isolate. Precisely. And then just let me say that there is, it's different if you have no symptoms. So if you're in the situation where you, it, so in a, the opposite situation is you have no symptoms and no known contact with anyone who had the virus or has been sick. You do a rapid test. If it's negative, then you should be very comfortable that you don't have COVID that day. I think that's a great point. And I think that's another one of the great uses of the antigen test. Say you're going to be visiting your grandmother or going to a holiday gathering. You don't have any symptoms that so you want to provide that extra level of reassurance. I think that's a great use of the antigen test just to make sure that you're another piece of evidence that you're not carrying an asymptomatic infection. I completely agree. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining today. Um, you know, uh, I know a lot of people are struggling with these questions, and I, I think it was very helpful in breaking it down uh, for a lay audience. Um, thanks for joining us, and I, I'm sure we look forward to having you back uh, again soon. 